either my mic's not on or you're just like a timid. So you want to try that again? How are you doing today? Good. There you go. Caffeine crew right over here. Good stuff. You'll notice that our high school students, good to see you guys. Some of you are missing because they're on an Arizona missions trip coming back today, this evening. So we're going to be glad to have them. Glad to see you guys. Also, our Tanzania team should be coming home soon as well. And so exciting stuff to see Trinity literally around the world this summer. And Trots, we really love and appreciate you guys. Thank you for even being here with us for a few weeks over this summer and excited about your ministry going back. So we're glad to be here with you today. Lots of travels going on. Uh, we, my family just got back from a, a two-week road trip. I brought pictures, right? You always want to bring pictures. And uh, this is one of us at a place called Camp 18 in Oregon. Uh, if you've never had, if you've been to a place and never felt like you had enough food, you need to attend to Camp 18. Um, I just said attend. I don't think you attend a restaurant. You eat there. But it's a former logging camp, and they feed you like loggers. And so... My family does not eat like loggers, and therefore we had lots of leftovers, but it was great. And then another shot, we were in Washington on a ferry and went over. If you're in the Seattle area, you have to go on ferries. We stayed with Joanna's sister who lives on an island, literally, and our life was ruled by ferry schedules. It was a very interesting way to live, and uh, I'm glad to have been there, and now I'm glad to be back. So we're glad to be home. The real hero of our story is uh, Joanna's minivan, 3,545 miles uh, we conquered, and that to us is a long road trip. For you, you're like, yeah, we do 8,000 miles on a road trip. I say, praise God. My prayer life was increased greatly because I was like, Lord, I got to get back to preach on Sunday. So get us home. And uh, the minivan did well. So we're glad to be back with you guys. I want to give you a couple of things. You can get this out, by the way. This is your notes inside your worship folder. Have those out so you can track with us today. <clears throat> also want to tell you about an important save the date. You'll notice on your worship folder on the left panel uh, there's a date there, September the 23rd. It's a Saturday morning. You're all invited. It's a church-wide thing. A friend of mine, Tom Mercer from High Desert Church, is going to come and do an Oikos seminar. And basically, a seminar sounds like somewhere you wouldn't want to be on a Saturday morning. But the reason you will want to be here is he's just going to, it's really tied into our message well today, about the idea of understanding God's um, very unique and specific way he wants to use you in your relational world. And the idea that this concept is all over scripture and how to really get some handles on being a person of intentional influence. And so that morning from 9 to 11.30, we're going to be right here in the worship center. Everyone's invited, and you're just going to hear from really a guy who's literally given this information all over the world uh, in churches here in the States and in Asia and South America. And so I think you're just really going to be blessed and really be uh, given good skills, some good equipping. So Saturday, September 23rd, have that on your radar and we will uh, be good to go. We're here today, if you're joining us, by the way, for the first time, really want to welcome you. Thank you for being here at Trinity Church. You're joining us in a series called Faith Steps. Pretty obvious. It's the big words behind me. And uh, in it, what we've been doing is looking at narratives from the Old Testament, from the former covenant, with the goal of trying to not just admire people's faith. That's what often happens. You have people in your world who have been through something very, very challenging. You saw them trust God, and they really did. They had faith in him. They followed him through thick and thin. And you admire what they did and how they lived, and, and rightly so, you should. The problem is, is that's usually where it ends, I admire someone for trusting God through something very challenging, but yet the thing that I'm facing, the thing that I'm staring at, for some reason, I don't think God's strong enough to do that. 
And so we just admire and move on in our lack of faith. So our goal has been, as we looked at these narratives in the former Testament, to find out, God, how do we not just be encouraged and have admiration for other people's growing confidence in you? How do we begin to have a growing confidence in you and the things we're staring at even today? And that's been our hope throughout the series. I was in here last week. Hilke did a great job. Talked about this great narrative you've never heard of before because it doesn't make for good flannel graph, right? King Jehoshaphat, a guy you've never even heard of from Judah, and had this great line from his prayer, we have no idea of what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a great prayer of surrender. And so no doubt last week, the things that you're facing, you, there were so many of us that had that same sense of going, God, you're right. I needed today because I'm in this, this crossroads. I'm at this fork of the road. I have no idea what to do. My eyes are on you. You lead, I'll follow. And so today we're going to take one step further in the same idea of narrative. Today what we're going to do, we're going to actually look at, if you've grown up in church, a guy who did make it to the felt board, Right? He made it to the blue phonograph board. His name is Naaman, N-A-A-M-A-N. So maybe the more correct pronunciation would be Naaman, but I grew up in Southern California, so we're going to Naaman, okay? So within that, we're going to look at really a powerful narrative about a miraculous way that he's healed. But really today is a lot less about Naaman and a lot more about the people that God used to be influential in his life. And that's what I really want to draw your attention to And that's what I want you to be able to see. Each week, we've been kind of putting together what we're calling a next step. Take a look at ours today. Pay attention to your opportunities to be a source of intentional Jesus influence in the lives of your relational world. And that's where we're going today. Take a note. Number one today, be Jesus's ambassador who points people to the cure that they're looking for. Be Jesus's representative to your world for people who are looking for the cure who are looking for a cure that they're looking for. Let's begin. Your Bibles, by the way, 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm sorry I forgot to tell you that at the beginning. It's in the former testament. And here's the huge help for the day. It comes right after 1 Kings. Boom. You, you're welcome. Okay? 2 Kings chapter 5. Our whole narrative today is found in one chapter. We won't even look at all of it, but that's where it is. And we'll pick it up. Chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, or Aram. He was a great man in, sight of his, in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, to Naaman's wife, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So we find out some really important things right out of the gate today. Let's begin this way. We're introduced to some very important characters. Character, kind of the, the, the main character of this narrative is a guy named Naaman. Now, Naaman, what's interesting to us about him from the very beginning is that he's not Jewish. He's not of the tribe of tribes of Israel. He's from another place. Take a look at my map. This is the kingdom of Aram in this time period. I'll, I'll put a pointer over here. Uh, and it's modern-day Syria, okay? So this is where this is at. And Damascus would have been the capital city. Now, Samaria, which we just mentioned, this is the nation of Israel. Samaria is over here. So this is the distance from here to here that this narrative is going to take place. And notice right down the middle, this is the Jordan River. Okay, by the way, I'm pretty good with a laser pointer, am I not? 
So that, those are three key geographical places, Damascus, Samaria, and the Jordan River. We'll, we'll get to those. Now, within that, though, he's not just any guy from Syria. He is the commander of the armies. He's like the top dog general. And if you read this in there, by the way, it's fascinating. It says that he wasn't just victorious or successful. What did it say? Who God used to bring victory to Aram. God was using pagan Gentile generals to do his bidding. Yep, every day. That's because we serve a God who's sovereign. A God who is over all and in all. He's not just one of many gods pushing an agenda. He is the supreme Yahweh of the universe. And so God was doing things on Naaman's behalf, bringing him victory, bringing him esteem. And we'll find today, Naaman wasn't just successful. Naaman was actually a good guy. Naaman had done some things right, and we'll kind of unpack those a little bit today. Now, his name comes from a Hebrew verb, na'im, and that means to be delightful, pleasant, or beautiful. So the idea of being gracious or well-formed. So let's, let's look at today. Today's full of irony, by the way. So Naaman, this guy's name, equivalent to a, a picturesque of all that is manly and, and beautiful. Okay, I don't know manly and beautiful go together, but they do today, okay? He's a good-looking specimen. Let's put it that way. That's what his name means. But then very curiously, in chapter 5, verse 2, it says real clearly in the text, so you don't miss it, but he had leprosy. A guy whose name means he's incredibly good-looking has leprosy, something that makes you not good-looking. Names throughout the Old Testament to me are always have so much sense of irony in them. I love Abraham's name. Abraham, the father of many. Abraham, wow, it's crazy. How many kids do you have? None. Okay, so God just uses great irony. This is the irony of Naaman's name. It means picturesque, well-formed, but he had leprosy. Let's talk a little bit about what this word leprosy is all about. This term, which would include leper, lepers, leprosy, and leprous, that in our English translation occurs 68 times in the Bible. 55 in the former covenant, 13 in the New Testament. And um, these Old Testament um, explanations, and by the way, the same is kind of true in the New, this word actually was kind of an umbrella term. It's translated leper or leprosy, but it's an umbrella term to being an infectious skin disease. Okay, so that's, that's the really key piece you need to know. Rather than get too caught up on what particular skin disease, it was infectious and it was very pronounced. It was very obvious, as we'll see in our text today. Here, here's an interesting thing, by the way. I was thinking about this this week. If you grew up in church, isn't it interesting that you know things about leprosy? Nobody else does. Isn't that weird? Just think about it. I'm 46 years old, and if you take my counterpoint part that lives here in Southern California, hey, what do you know about leprosy? Nothing. I don't even know what that is. I can tell you lots about leprosy. I can tell you that they quarantine people. I can tell you names of lepers, and I can tell you how many Jesus healed. You know, It's just kind of very interesting, and, and it's, to me, in a weird way, here nor there. But what's interesting about it is that just growing up in church, you've learned things about stuff that other people don't know, and maybe that doesn't even matter, and I should stop talking. But anyways... <laughs> That's, um, that's just curious. So if you've grown up in church, you've known this idea of leprosy a little bit. And like I said, you might have even heard Naaman's story because it makes a good flannel graph. The key I want us to hear, though, today are the people who were very important in his life. 
Because here's what you have. You have a guy who's very successful, a guy who's way at the top escalon, but a guy who has a very obvious problem. He has an infectious disease that at some level, maybe not to the degree that Israel quarantined lepers, but he still needs help in a big way. He knows it, and the people around him know it. This disease, by the way, I'll give you a quick thing on it. It's, it's modernly known as Hansen's disease. That's part of the reason is that we don't use the term leprosy much anymore. This is what that disease actually looks like, though. It says it begins with specks on the eyelids and on the palms, gradually spreading over the body, bleaching the hair white wherever they appear, and crusting the affected parts with white scales. By the way, some of you are like, oh my gosh, I think I might have. You're fine. Okay, don't worry about it. All the hypochondriacs in the room have leprosy all of a sudden. You're fine, okay? But watch this. This is what it does. It causes terrible sores and swelling. So it's, it begins as a skin disease that's unsightly, but then it moves to being very painful. And watch this. From the skin, the disease eats inward to the bones, rotting the whole body piecemeal. This, this is something that there was no cure for, and it was going to be something very degenerative that would actually end up not only not necessarily taking your life, but sure, keeping you out of life, put it that way. It was very, very challenging disease to have. So within this whole context, this is what we realize. So we're introduced to this guy. He has a glaring, significant problem. It's more than a hindrance. It's an everyday challenge he faces. But I'm going to introduce you today to three people who interact with Naaman, three Yahweh influencers, three people that God uses to influence Naaman towards the one true God. The first is someone that, to me, of all the people that I could have expected would be the least who would want to talk about Yahweh. And that is Naaman's wife's slave girl. You heard the context. I don't know how she couldn't have felt abandoned by God. Here she was one day. We don't know the whole story, but let's imagine for a moment she's out one day and she's doing things. Let's say she's 12 years old and she's hanging out with friends or she's hanging out with her sister. And all of a sudden it says that marauding bands of of soldiers would come across from Aram into Israel and they would steal people, take them home and make them slaves. The modern day term for that is human trafficking. That's exactly what happened to her. She was out minding her own business at home in Israel. She snatched away from her family. She snatched away from her culture. She snatched away from her God, seemingly, and taken away to this foreign land and made to be a slave for a woman she's never met before. And that probably happened about that fast. Here's the thing I love about her story. Bitterness did not get the best of her. Instead of fuming about God forsaking her and failing her, instead of keeping her mouth shut when she saw the need that Naaman had, she pleads with his wife to have him to go to see God's spokesperson, the prophet Elisha, who lived in Samaria in order to be healed of his condition. Apparently to appear to be discarded by God, she speaks up on the same God's behalf in order to tell this mistress of her husband, how her husband, can be cured by an agent of Almighty God. She saw an obvious need in front of her, and she pointed Naaman's wife towards the cure. The cure was Yahweh, and he had a spokesperson, a prophet, who could talk to him for her. Question to you today, what does that look like in your world? Are there people in your relational world who have significant needs, significant challenges, significant hurdles that they face every day, and they're desperate for help? 
Can I insert the answer? The answer is yes. There are people in your relational world who that is their life. That is what they deal with. That's how they live on a day-to-day basis. And while you might not know the prophet who lives in Samaria, you do know his God. You know him well, and you don't need a middleman. You don't need someone to talk to Yahweh on your behalf. You can go directly to God for them, and you should. It's called intercessory prayer. It's called praying for the needs of people in your relational world. And as you do that, by the way, it's not a bad idea to tell the people that are going through these challenges that you're praying for them. That, that all of a sudden sometimes can come, come out of the blue and, oh, oh, you're, you're praying for me. I'm, I'm not a religious person, but thank you very much. Can, can I tell you my experiences with that? Literally, out of, out of dozens of people over my lifetime that I've said, can I pray for you? Or I'll be praying for you about that. I've had one or two say, no, thank you. Just one or two. Most everyone, no matter how irreligious they are, will say, okay, thanks, if, if only that. So it gives you an open door. Here's the wild thing. If things don't go well, that's sometimes your fear is, I don't want to say I'm praying for them, and then if God doesn't come through, it looks bad on God. Can I say, honestly, if they heard you say you're praying for them, you might as well have said, give me a high five on the way out of the room. It's not registering as some big deal to them. If things continue to go poorly, they just chalk it up to, uh, it's just a bummer and it's sad. But watch this. But if God decides to intervene in a profound way, what I've found is those same people come back to me and say, I don't know who you know, but I want to thank you for praying for me. I want to thank you for praying for my husband. I want to thank you for praying for my daughter because things are improving. When things go better, they don't know who else to thank and they come and find you. It gives you an amazing opportunity to be a person of influence in their life simply by praying for them and letting them know you are. Now, by the way, there's a lot you can do after you pray. Can I make a big deal? Let's start there, though. How often we do everything else we can think of and we have nothing left to go, oh, I guess I should pray. I try to live by this quote, when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. So let's start with prayer. But after prayer, there's a lot of other things you can do. Things, ways that you can be a source of intentional influence and to help them with even their greatest need of all, the need of being rescued by a God who loves them intensely. You might be tempted to think today, but Todd, I don't have any great skill, right? I'm not a great debater. I'm not really uh, just good with words. I'm not good at apologetics. I'm not even that winsome of a person. Like people just don't gather around me to hear me talk I don't really have much I can do to offer. Can I ask you a question? Did you see the example of the slave girl? She definitely had no power or position. She's a slave. She doesn't have some articulate thing. She's just convinced God is able to heal. And if you go see his prophet, he'll do this for you. She just points Naaman's wife in the right direction. That's all she did. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't want to compare her today to a young slave girl who had been stolen from her family, but there are some interesting similarities with the slave girl from 2 Kings 5 and my friend, your friend, Susan Cochran Yu. Uh, a lot of you have known Susan for a long time, long time uh, member here at Trinity, and she passed away a few months ago. And I got to know her for a few months during that season before she uh, went to be with the Lord. I'll never forget um, her uh, memorial service. 
like a lot of great memorial services when people simply just live out according to God's design. There were great stories that were told not only about Susan, but about her God. Because that's what Susan would have wanted. It's not about me. Let's talk about Jesus. But, but most compelling of all of, of the three people who came up to share was the last young man. And he came up and he began with, you'll have to forgive me, English isn't my first language, but I, I wanted to share a little bit today about Susan's impact in my life. I would have never known, by the way, he's incredibly articulate, and his name was Martin. And Martin began to share that he had grown up in a system, in a religion, that when it came to Jesus was right of center, left of center, was over here, and missed the mark of who the Bible communicates Jesus to be. And so what he had done is become entrenched in religiosity and becoming more and more religious. And yet as he was, he was realizing more and more something was missing. By trade, he is a painter and began doing painting at the U home. And as he would interact with Susan, a couple things you need to know about Susan. Susan spent her life loving her husband and loving her kids. And she did a great job of both of those. They all attest to this. With her kids, she was their educator and raised them well, and with her husband, incredibly supportive, loved him well. So at this stage of life, she doesn't have some sort of status in our culture to pull from other than a great wife and mom, which is a huge status in and of itself, but our culture seems to not think so. On top of that, she had an incredibly debilitating disease, one that would ultimately take her life. So in this state of having no power and position, no prestige, and in the state of being constantly in pain, she starts having conversations with Martin. And she just starts to get to know him. And she just starts to share a little bit about her love for Jesus and who he is. And Martin would get up at her funeral and say, she continued to just have conversations. She became my friend. And I ultimately came to understand that what I had pursued in religion, what I always needed, his words in an email he wrote me this week, what all I needed all along was a relationship with Jesus. Susan had that and helped me understand that's what I needed. And Martin prayed and asked Jesus to be his savior. And as a result of Martin coming to Christ, almost all of his extended family has come to Jesus as well. Guess where that began? By a woman who said, God, in whatever state I'm in, I just simply want to be an influence for you. Even if you bring people to me to work at my home, I'm going to be someone who begins a relationship, a friendship, and just wants to care for them. Here's what I want you to hear today. Something I think you're not convinced of yet. You can do this. You can be a person of intentional Jesus influence by simply paying attention to the people that God has supernaturally, strategically placed in your world. When you're a slave girl from Israel, you realize that Naaman's wife is someone that you're called to be an influence in. When you are Susan Yu, you realize that Martin, the painter at your home, is someone you can have influence with. That's how it begins today. That's this first person of incredible influence in Naaman's life. Number two in your notes, God often rescues people through a team strategy. God often rescues people through a team strategy. I find this to be so true as we impact this today. See if this is true in your experience as well. Second Kings still, chapter five, now in verse four. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver. By the way, that's a ton of silver. 
6,000 shekels of gold and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of leprosy. I hope you get the irony of this, by the way. Like, whoa, wait, wait, wait. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a fight, pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door at Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say to him, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. Okay, now we don't have a lot of time to to go here, but I want you to see this great story that's unfolding and it doesn't always make the flannel graph board. As the king of Syria, king of Aram, sends uh, this note and all this wealth to the king of Israel, you have to realize, remember the the border tensions going on. Okay, so I'll reverse it, but for me, uh, here's Syria, Aram, here's Israel. Marauders are already going over and stealing people. That, That doesn't bode well for two nations working together, Okay. So there's already challenges and friction. He sends his commander of his army, probably the very commander who had had victories against Israel. Okay, the guy who's whooped you, I'm sending him to you for you to heal him. Hope that goes well. So the king, I mean, the idea of ripping your robes, tearing your robes, just meant you were utterly devastated. You had nowhere to go in this dramatic thing. He rips his robes. It's like, oh. What is he doing? He's picking a fight with me. And Elisha says, hey, that note was for me. (laughs) Chill out, calm down, send name in my way. So he hears about it. The king, by the way, uh, Syria at this time was probably a guy named Ben-Hadad and the king of Israel, a guy named Jehoram. And so he comes to Elisha. And what I want you to see about Elisha, this is the second person who's gonna have Yahweh influence in Naaman's life. I want you to see um, that Elisha is not super engaging or relational. Let me put it this way. I don't even want to talk to you. Here's my messenger. Go tell him what to do. It doesn't even literally open the door to talk to him. He doesn't meet with him personally. And what he tells him to do is very unmiraculous. Go take a bath. And when you come out, you'll be magically clean. That's exactly what Naaman here, like, What? So what does he do? What I want you to hear is this, though. This is the one key thing that Elisha does do. Elisha knows the truth. He knows that he serves the king of the universe. And he knows what to do with the truth. He tells him, in a sense, now, here's how you apply it. You've come to the right person. If there's anyone who can heal you from what you're facing, it's Yahweh. And here's now, now that that's true, let me tell you what to do with the truth. Go take a bath. Is it interesting in your journey and your process of coming to put your faith in Jesus, isn't it interesting how God was using a team? Here's what I mean. He was using people very close to you in your relational world, maybe a parent, maybe a coworker, maybe a, a, a relative, Someone in your world who followed Jesus, who'd been praying for you, and and you begin to have conversations, you begin to see the way that they live, and they're definitely influencing you. 
But along that way of you putting your faith in Jesus, there was also some other people that played significant parts. And the interesting thing is, they're people that you never even met. Maybe you came to church one day and there was a guest speaker preaching and just something about what was said began to do something new in your heart. Maybe you watched something on television or you heard something on the radio and all of a sudden something, someone you would have never met, someone you will never meet, said something that God used to be very powerful to you. Maybe you went to a crusade like the Harvest Crusade. Guess what? You're never going to meet Greg Laurie. But God used Greg Laurie to say something you needed to hear. This is this team thing we're talking about. Interestingly enough, it was your friend who took you to the crusade. We often discount that part. We just go, oh man, it's amazing. Went to Harvest Crusade, Greg Laurie. God totally used it. Yeah, but God had been using your friend for the last three years to set that whole thing up. And what God was doing all along was cultivating the soil of your heart so you would be ready to receive the seed he was throwing. I love this piece of the story. I love the fact that God uses these great teams. And and here's why. Simply, here's why. God is always the hero of all of our stories. It's never one person. By the way, I can't save anyone. And neither can you. That was never your job. Your job, though, is you get to join God in that process, in that journey that people are on. And how cool is that, that you get to be a team member? You get to partner up with what God is doing and the thing only he can do. We all have valuable roles, but all spiritual life, all spiritual growth comes from God. Here's how I know this is true. You don't have to open there. One of my favorite passages, though, in 1 Corinthians 3, look at the screen. Paul writes to a group of people, by the way, the Corinthians had done, it's amazing. As you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you read America. We're all over those pages. And one of the biggest challenges that the church was facing was that of celebrityism. They had made people into rock stars like Paul and Apollos and Peter when Jesus alone was where the credit should have gone. And so they're challenged with this. He says in verse five, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Watch this. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. God's the hero of the story. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but God, God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will be rewarded according to their own labor. God wants you to join him, wants to use you as partners in that process in people's lives. And there's reward when we do. However, God alone always makes it grow. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So a very different experience for Naaman than he expected. He doesn't even get to talk to the prophet. He has to hear from a messenger and to do something very base for him. Let's see how that goes. Number three in your notes today, relational credibility. What does that mean? It equals time plus developed trust. Relational credibility is an equation. It is time plus developed trust. Continuing on, verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and he said, I thought that he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of Yahweh. That's the word there. Call on Yahweh, his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure my leprosy. Like he had the whole miracle figured out. This is how it's gonna go. I'm gonna go over and do this magic thing. Um, Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? 
So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. All right, let's check out the narrative as we wrap it up. One of the things I want you to see, it's been thick in the story, but now becomes very pronounced, is all the racial tensions, right? You have no idea. I have no idea what it is to be in angst with a neighboring country. On our trip, we ventured over into Canada for a couple of days. The worst I had, it was a Canadian border patrol, and that too, um, <laughs> was a, a Canadian border patrol who um, was just very gruff with us at the, the, the gate and condescending, right? That... And, and I came back kind of emotionally scarred. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the level of national conflict I've experienced, okay? So we have no idea what this means to be at odds, to be at war with countries like this, these neighboring next-door nations. And what we're going to see is not only the conflict, but even the superiority. It's really clear what Naaman says in his rage, the silly di- directive to take a bath and the despised, and the Jordan River is a relatively muddy river. It's nowhere like, oh, let's go frolic in the river. It's kind of gross. Well, he goes on to play this true card of ethnic and geographic superiority, where he says the rivers of Damascus, well, at least they're beautiful. Of all rivers, I got to go dunk in the Jordan. So he turns his back on Elisha's method, and he heads home. Now, I want you to hear this. The, the whole racial idea is all throughout Scripture. It's all throughout our lives today. It hasn't gone away. Even in Jesus' time, Jesus actually uses the story of Naaman to kind of flip the race card the other direction. He's in um, his hometown in Nazareth, and he has presented himself to this group of people in the synagogue as Messiah. The guy that all the prophets wrote about, I'm him. And as he's making this argument, then he begins to kind of venture away from the fact that he just came to the house of Israel to say, I've come to the nations. I've come to save the world. At that, the people get lit up, and Naaman is one of the examples. You can look at the screen, Luke chapter 4. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And he uses a couple other examples of how God was working in the nations all along, not just reserving his power and strength for the people of Israel. Now, in, back to the Naaman narrative. This is the part I really love. Naaman was a type of, of guy that we kind of see in this, this uh, narrative. To me, is really interesting and something I think we should all kind of strive to be more like. Here's what you see. You see, number one, the people he reports to or the person he reports to is the king of Aram. The king of Aram, the moment he hears there's a way for Naaman to be healed, he sends a letter and a bunch of loot to say, please heal this guy. So he's got favor with the person he reports to. But now watch. Now we're going to see the people that actually report to him. Those that come in below Naaman, they also deeply want to see him be healed, want to see him be benefited. That is a unique kind of person who not only those he reports to appreciate him, but those who he, he reports to, but those who report to him. Let me say it this way. A lot of times in management and leadership, We do a pretty good job of leading up, meaning I want to win the favor and the trust of those I lead. But often we can treat the people who report to us pretty poorly. And one thing I've learned is to watch when you watch different leaders and even pastors, 
not watch how they treat me, but how do you treat the people that report to you? Naaman did an amazing job leading both directions. The guy he reported to deeply wanted to help him, and the people who reported to Naaman deeply wanted to help him. That's the kind of guy that this guy was. So servants, we don't know if these servants, by the way, were from Israel as well. It'd be a little conjecture to put that out there. I think if nothing else, they're just simply pragmatic. They're like, hey, why would you do this? We came all the way, you saw my map. We came all the way from Damascus just for you to be mad and go home. Let's at least try it. The river's over there. Let's just give it a shot. But without just the pragmatism, you do sense they even began with, he begins with my father. It's a very endearing term. Not just one of humility, but one of a sense of relationship. Hey, I care deeply about you. I want the best for you. At least go give it a shot. Go try something. They knew that Naaman would have to take a posture of humility to do this, but they also knew knew that it would be worth it. How do you get that kind of influence? How do you get that kind of credibility, especially as a servant, especially as a slave? What I love, all throughout the former testament, there are all these great stories of people that God used, people of the nation of Israel, he used in incredible leadership roles in all the other nations. Think of names like Joseph. Think of names like um, Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah, all people that were of Israel descent, that were displaced, and God used in incredible ways. But watch this. Here's potentially also a group of people that are in a servant-like role, and we don't know if they ever arise to any kind of role of prominence, but it didn't matter because all of them started at the same place. Those same people, Joseph, Daniel, Esther, and Nehemiah, they all started as slaves or at least as displaced people living in exile. They didn't have any kind of credentials. They didn't have any kind of position. What they did have was building credibility with people who they served. How do you get that kind of influence with others if it's not related to power or position? It's what you wrote in your notes. It's based on time and it's based on trust. Naaman needed more than cool heads that day. He needed to hear from people who could be corrective in his life. They, they made a huge gamble by crossing over lines to a guy they reported to to kind of confront him on, you don't want to do this. But they took the risk and the reason why Naaman listened was because they were trustworthy. They had served him well over a course of years. He knew he could trust what they said. I wonder if that's why God puts you and I, you and me in positions of influence in our relational worlds when we have no pronounced power or position with people. You have people, you might even have a position of power in your community, but I'm talking about your neighbor. Like the fact that you're a professor doesn't matter to him. The fact that you're a doctor to your extended family who always thought, well, you know, Jimmy, you know, they don't, they don't care about that stuff. Why, why then would God use you in that kind of a role with people when they don't even really care about any position that you have? It's because you have time and you have trust and you've built a place of credibility with them. Be assured of this, there will be times of weakness and despair in the lives of people in your relational world. It's happening today, and if it's not today, it's coming this week. There are people in despair in your relational world, and they will seek out your counsel, and they will seek out your advice because you have built relational credibility with them. 
And you'll have the opportunity to experience the joy that Naaman's servants did. Can you imagine just for a moment, they've been on this long trek, they've been disappointed by going from place to place, and now they're like, oh, this is a muddy Jordan, what in the world? But imagine him coming up out of the water and completely cleansed. His, his ailment was so physically obvious that the healing was also so physically obvious. They got a front row seat for that. Can I tell you something? When you take advantage of the relational opportunities of the people in your world who are hurting and you see God move, you get a front row seat to watch him powerful in their lives. I just don't want you to miss that. I don't want you to miss out on that opportunity. Look at Naaman's response to all this, chapter 5, 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him, goes back to Elisha, and he said, now I know there is no God at all in the world. Watch this except in Israel. The gods of Syria, of Aram, nope, they're not real. The gods of Moab, the gods of the Philistines, nope, they're not real. The God of Israel is the one true God, and now I know this. Naaman was not only healed, but he had now an undeniable faith in Yahweh as a result of influential people that God had supernaturally and strategically placed in his world. Simple question. Is this how God worked exclusively in one account found in the Bible? Or is it a bit more descriptive of how he works more often than not in our lives and in the lives of people we're relationally connected to? And I would venture the latter. This is very typical of how God works in lives. He uses his own people to be influential. So my prayer for you this week is that you would pay attention to the opportunities pay attention to the opportunities that God puts in your life of people in your relational world, especially those who are hurting and who are looking for hope. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today as a people who simply want to thank you. We want to thank you for the privilege of knowing you, the privilege of being brought into your family And the privilege, God, of being able to be a partner with you, being a team member in the way you're rescuing people around us. What an incredibly just cool concept to think about that you would want us to be your representatives, your ambassadors. We know how frail we are. We know how broken we are. We know how wrecked we are on a daily basis, and yet you want us to join you in your rescue of the world. That's just mind-bending, but we thank you that you want to accomplish this mission this way. You may be here today and you would say, Todd, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like this Naaman guy. I've been seeking. I'm, I need help. I need hope. I'm very aware of that. And I don't know where to go. I don't know where to find it. The great news is, is that you've come to the right place today because you, you find it in the person of Jesus, God's one-of-a-kind son. And you do it through the lens of the ABCs. A is to admit. Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B is to believe that Jesus, who lived a sinless life, he died a sacrificial death. He was raised supernaturally on the third day. Believe that he is the only savior available. Like Naaman said, there's no other God but the God of Israel. So C is choose. Choose to say, God, I want to follow the example that Jesus set for me. I want to be yours. You can make that decision before you even leave this place. And my prayer today is that you would. Father, we love you. Thank you for the incredible privilege of being yours and a part of your team. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.